0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hello, everyone, and thank you for your patience. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I'm the director of uh, Global University Education. I really want to thank all of you for being here. Um, today's event is part of the One Book, One College, co-sponsoring this event, uh, today, the, the book for this year is Between Two Worlds by Roxana Sabari. And um, today I'd like to welcome Dr. Khalil Murar of DePaul University, who will be discussing the Middle East after bin Laden. Professor Murar has taught political science, history, international studies, and religion. He specializes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Islamic political thought. His research interests include international relations, ancient and modern philosophy, American culture, foreign policy, and global institutions, as well as terrorism. He served in editorial positions at the Arab Studies Quarterly, an association of Arab American university graduates. He's the author of The Arab Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy The two, this two State Solution, Reforming Islam, The Challenge of Islamist Political Thought, a book in progress, and is also in the process of co authoring an article entitled The Choice. Exiting Iraq via Iran. If you thank you if you could uh, help me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Khalil Moran.
1: Thank you. thank you very much, folks. Uh, thank you for your patience. The Stevenson is a monster that oftentimes like takes me a long time to get through, but today was especially bad, and I really appreciate your patience. Um, so the title of my talk today is literally after Bin Laden, and I really don't have a script, per se, because a lot of the events of the last 10 years are really unscripted. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that most people not only did not anticipate, but it's something that most people really s- could not even imagine. I mean, this is a kind of nightmare that no one has ever w- was ever able to imagine could possibly happen. But it's also the kind of political turmoil and events that we've experienced collectively as a, ma- as a nation, that really is very hard to fathom, very hard to not only comprehend, but very hard to really like know what to do about. Now, I'm here today not only to possibly hazard some solutions or some answers, I'm really here to have a conversation about this collective experience that we've had, not just as a nation, but as people of all faiths, as people of a variety of not just religions, but also national creeds, identities, and so on. And And really, when we look at the events of the past 10 years, I'm sure you've heard enough about how many people saw something in the news over the weekend, for example? Okay, how many people were completely tuned out, did not want to see anything? All right, cool, good. So just a few of you were tuned out, not want to see anything. Um, I happen to be somebody who saw a whole lot of what took place this weekend, and it's really a time for reflection. I mean, when you think about the events of the last 10 years, these are not events that brought us closer together as a nation alone, there were also events that were very divisive, right? And there are events that have forced us into behavior that is both unprecedented and behavior that is very dangerous for not just the nation, but for the world. For example, when surveyed shortly after 9-11, 90% of, actually fill in the blank for me, 90% of which people thought the greatest threat on earth is not Al-Qaeda, but it's the United States. Does you know which country this is? Do you want multiple choice? Sure. <laughs> Iran is A. Okay. Um, let's see, let's pick an easy one. Uh, China is B, right? C is the UK, the United Kingdom. What's that? Iran. Iran. Yeah, everybody thinks Iran, right? But actually, it's it's the UK, right? Ninety percent of British citizens, ninety percent of British nationals, thought that the greatest threat to national or to global security, not just their national security was the United States of America. When you have staggering polls like this, it makes you really wonder, it makes you question the kind of nation that the United States is, but it also makes you wonder what what the world is thinking, not just about the United States of America, but what the world is thinking about, like, not just our behavior, right, but our national temperament, right? And there's nothing more ferocious than the American national temperament. I mean, we're both very angry and very happy. We're both... We're both very global and very local. We're both very universal and very, and literally like, like very nationalist and parochial in scope, right? And that's, you know, I chose this country. Unlike a lot of you, I wasn't born here, right? I, I actually chose this country as my nation. And I chose this country because, in my humble opinion, the American people are the finest people on earth. But because we're the finest, I mean, it's kind of dangerous when I say this, and sometimes my colleagues look down on me for saying this. I feel like we're sort of like an exceptional people that way, right? But let me take this further. I feel like we are a sort of a chosen people, even though it's very dangerous to say that. And we're not just chosen to show the world what is best about human beings, but we're potentially chosen to show the world what could possibly be the worst about human beings, right? So we're both capable of best and worst, right? And one of the worst things that I've ever seen in my entire life, and I'm sure you've seen enough of this, I'm sure that most of you are old enough to actually have been literally glued to your television screens, or if you're in Lower Manhattan, or in Washington, saw the Pentagon, or in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I don't think anybody would be in Shanksville. But that's besides the point. Um, you, you, saw, you saw images like this, right? And the question that, that was asked immediately is, is "Why?" Right? That, it was a horror. And I, when I heard the news that a plane had crashed into one of the towers in the World Trade Center, I had this part of me that immediately knew this is really bad like and this is really bad not just for America it's really bad for somebody like me who's a Muslim American right like I immediately knew that this is this might have something to do with like people that purport to be of my faith I immediately knew that this has something to do with people that are internationally oriented I immediately knew that this has something to do with 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 people that have literally not only hijacked these aircraft, but hijacked what I subscribe to, my own faith, my own religion, and really my identity as an Arab-American. Um, now, no, these were not Americans, but there were people here, these hijackers, that literally flew these planes into World Trade Center and forced one plane into Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and forced another plane into the Pentagon. And the sad truth of this is that these are people that claim to be part of my people, like like literally the people that I feel like I belong to, in addition to being an American. And yet there are people that that are really so far away from where I see myself, not just as an American, but as a freedom-loving, peace-loving human being, right? Not just as a Muslim American, but as somebody who takes his face seriously. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard the, you know, analysis that, you know, we're not at war with Islam, that this, has, this war has nothing to do with Islam, that what these men did has nothing to do with Islam, Right? But I'm, I'm more, I'm more, I'm kind of skeptical about that analysis, right? And the reason I'm skeptical about that analysis is because these are people that say that this has everything to do with their faith. These are people that say that this has everything to do with the suffering that my compatriots, the people that I call my people, in addition to the American people, are back at home. And these are people that basically say that they're doing it in the name of freedom for those people, right? And that's what really scares me the most is that is that in a time when nobody's saying anything about American foreign policy, those that speak and do so most violently are the ones that are listened to most closely. And what I fear is that not only are they listened to most closely, right, but they become like this, this it's almost like eternal representation of what it means to be a Muslim. This eternal representation of what it means to be somebody who, who comes from the Muslim world and who wants to resist what they see as an injustice and as something that, frankly, is evil, according to people like Bin Laden, right? And this is a result. This is a result. And this is a result not just for Americans to see. This is a result for all of mankind, humankind, to see. This is a result for history, for present, and for future to see. And and, and the worst thing about this, the worst thing about this, is that these are people that claim to be fighting for justice, Right? And this is a result of what their strive for justice is. I'm not sure what to make of that. I'm not sure that these people really feel that what they're doing is just deep down. I suspect they do, right? And that's what scares me the most, is that, is that these people really think that their mission is one of virtue, that their mission is one of truth, and that their mission is, is rightly guided. Literally, like as-sirat al-mustaqim, as Bin Laden says, right? And I fear that these people not only are convinced of the like, truth of their action. like, like, like Literally, like they're, they're speaking truth to power right? by imposing their bizarre will on not just the United States of America, but the world. They're speaking truth to power in the sense that they are the only ones, the only ones. They see themselves as the only ones that are resisting the, what they see as colonialism or empire or whatever. Right? That's what scares the heck out of me. And it scares me because if those are the only people that are speaking, if those are the only people that are saying anything, then what's the alternative? Right? And this is exactly what I was thinking around the time of 9-11. What is the alternative for people that want change? Is this the way to change? I don't think so. This is the way to change, yes. But change, we could have such a thing as change for the worse. And this is the worst kind of change. Right? And this didn't make Americans like cower in horror and not want to, like, take any action, not want to retaliate, it didn't make Americans say, oh, maybe it's a good idea that we pull out of the Middle East, whatever that means. Maybe it's a good idea that we leave Muslims alone. Maybe it's a good idea that we redeploy our forces or just completely pull them out, bring them back home, right? What was the effect of this? In October of 2001, the October was literally regime change in Afghanistan. And later on, the Bush administration claimed that Iraq is the central front in the war on terrorism and we invaded Iraq. Right? That was the result of this. So Al Qaeda didn't it did speak truth to power. The effect of what it did is it basically brought the wrath and the vengefulness of one of the greatest superpowers that's ever existed. They didn't get their they didn't get their way, right? We don't we didn't cower. We didn't get divided. We didn't I mean the worst thing that you can possibly do to a country like this a country, literally, of free people—a country of people that are brave. I'm taking this from the national creed. Some of you may remember this, right? The worst thing that you can do to a country like that is, is to commit a, an action like this, right? This did not have the intended effect. It didn't divide us. It made us more united, right? Today is September 12th. Like people like Glenn Beck have, like a September 12th coalition or movement. Anybody familiar with that one? Right. Like, yeah, September 12th, 9 12 is literally when we came together, and like people like Glenn Beck are trying to make that not only their aim, but make that their coalition, right? They're trying to play off of that and 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 make that their their own. Like for people that are you know fairly conservative, people of the Tea Party will say we're part of the September 12th coalition, right? This Glenn Beck coalition, right? And my fear with that is that here we have. I'm not comparing. I'm not saying that Glenn Beck is, you know, like an extremist or Bin Laden or something like that. But what I'm saying, however, is that, is that the kind of sense, if you will, that people in this country that are in favor of bringing about more actions to counter things like this, more invasions, more regime changes, is equally dangerous and really puts us in the same position that we found ourselves in in 2003, 2004, 2005, and so on. Right? I'm not partisan, but as somebody who's fairly conservative, I fear that those people speaking on my behalf is equally as dangerous as those people speaking on my behalf. Right? But let me not take pot shots. Let me just step back a little bit and tell you why I'm here, what the original reason for me being here is. It's to look at not just what happened here, it's to also look at the current outcome of political change in this region, in the Middle East, right, in the Muslim world. There's really two strands of thinking in the Muslim world, and that's what I'm here to update you on. right? There's a strand of thinking that says that we have enemies, and the biggest enemy is the United States of America. We have enemies ideological, and national. And the biggest enemy is not only the United States of America, but the biggest enemy is is is, and I, I hate to say this, but it's, it's freedom. It's people being able to be free. Freedom of choice. Freedom of action. Freedom of thought. Freedom of expression. Right? When you look at people like Sayyid Qutb, anybody familiar with Sayyid Qutb? K-U-T-B. They were afraid of the kind of change that things like globalization would bring about. They were afraid of the kind of change that things like free trade with the United States would bring about. They were afraid of the kind of change that, that the freedom of cultural exchange would bring about. They were afraid of the kind of change, frankly, that, that the West would bring about. Right? They saw things like freedom, the rights of women, the rights of minorities, the rights of choice, being able to choose and associate the way you want to, they saw those things as an inherent danger to people that they saw as being their people, right? Muslims, Arabs, Egyptians, whatever. Right. That's one strand of thinking in the Middle East. And that's one strand of thinking in the Muslim world in general. There's another strand of thinking, and this is exactly what's expressed here. Can anybody read Arabic? Can anybody tell me what that says? Yeah. Irhal. What does that mean? Go away, get out. Who are they talking to? What's that? American. Oh, yes, okay, excellent. Right. The Americans, right? This is this is one strand of thinking that belongs to, for example, Al Qaeda. This is not what this picture is, right? Who are they talking to in this picture? Does anybody know? Yeah? Which government? Their own government, right? In this, this in this case this comes to us from Cairo, Egypt, right? Two strands. Irhal, this word, right? Literally move out, get away, leave us alone. One strand that thinks that the biggest enemy is the United States of America, right, is the West. And another strand that thinks that the biggest enemy is not the United States of America, it's themselves. It's what has been produced. It's these authoritarian, dictatorial, tyrannical regimes that rule with an iron fist. These basically, for lack of a better term, fascist regimes, like the former Mubarak regime that they toppled, right, right? authoritarian regimes like Libya's Gaddafi, Muammar Gaddafi, who we don't know where he's at right now. Some people say he's in Niger. Some people say he's in Libya. Some people just say he like, might have like, committed suicide. Some people say that well, if he's dead or alive or whatever, right? What we do know is that the Libyan regime is out. Others, like the Syrian regime, headed by Bashar al-Assad, who torture for is a sport, who basically takes people who call for freedom and beats them up. Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia gives like a it gives a bad name to absolute monarchy. It really does. Like it used to be good according to the Saudis. Now it's really bad. Saudi Arabia the same country that that not only seeks to preserve this this feudal feudal well some people might say futile, right? Feudal regime, but also seeks to keep it around the Middle East. Saudi Arabia the same country that's responsible for the reaction to these revolutionaries to these revolutions in the middle east saudi arabia which like literally shelters former dictators saudi arabia the same country that not only rules their country their own people with an iron fist but the same country that's responsible for the stability of the middle east right saudi arabia that our presidents including president george w bush right saudi arabia where President Bush dances with the King of Saudi Arabia? Has anybody seen that video where they're dancing together? Right, but don't don't just you know pick on Bush. Don't hate on Bush for this. Saudi Arabia, where President Obama like does what to the King? Takes a bow, right? That's Saudi Arabia. You see, when people talk about their opposition to the United States of America, right? When Al Qaeda talks about their opposition to the United States of America. They're not just opposing the United States of America for its freedoms. right? They're also opposing the United States of America for its support of these dictatorial regimes. But again, there are two strands of thinking. There's the one strand that says that we should go after the United States of America. There's the other strand of thinking that says that we need to counter these demons from within. Bashar al-Assad was not installed by the United States of America. Bashar al-Assad, the leader of Syria, literally came to power, through the Syrian military. Same thing with Mubarak. Same thing, same thing with any regime that you can look at in the Middle East. Right? There's an enemy from within. The two strands of thinking that are opposed, literally, is going back to the past, to this imagined past, and moving towards the future. Right? Two strands of thinking are more authoritarianism, just different figureheads and more freedom with a truly democratic elected leadership. When these people in the Middle East, when they call for freedom, that's what they want, right? They want to to have rights that, that we basically take for granted in this country. And right now, they only have two choices, and they're really two foul choices, that of the Bin Ladenites and the Islamic fundamentalists, and that of the Saudi monarchy. right? Until very recently, those are the only two choices that they had. And now, with this Arab Spring, they have a new choice. They have a new choice that brings them closer to freedom. I'm not saying it's all hunky-dory. Right? I'm not saying it's like th- these people are free. I mean, the media does a number on this. right? They make us think that, like, oh, we have a Libyan revolution. We have an Egyptian revolution. We have a Syrian revolution. We have, we have let's not forget, about Tunisian re- revolution, right? And the outcome is basically freedom. Like these people become free overnight. Right? That's, not the, that's not really what's happening right now. I mean, the truth is the Egyptian military still rules just as they did under Mubarak. Right? The Tunisian military rules just like they did under Ben Ali, the former leader of Tunisia. The Libyan Transitional Council is basically a military regime right, where people with guns basically rule. That's the problem in this region. And yet, at the same time, there is a burgeoning civil society that's coming out of these revolutions. Civil society is a nice term, right? That's coming out of these revolutions that not only wants to see the freedom that they have so long for, For literally decades, in the case of Gaddafi, over 40 years, 42 years, the longest-serving Middle East dictator until like yesterday, right? Until he was toppled earlier this month, right? I guess last month, technically. I mean, what these people want is not the status quo. What they want is change. The danger is that Al-Qaeda offers that change. But the change that Al-Qaeda offers... is that, right, on the left. And the change that's being offered by these revolutions is on the right, Iran. And they're not speaking to the United States of America. They're speaking to the regimes that came out of these earlier attempts for change, right? These military dictatorships in some cases and, 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 and literally like, like divinely sanctioned monarchies in other cases, what they want is change, right? And the question is, how will they get that change? And there are two answers, right? One strand of thinking that thinks that we should go back to the past, another strand of thinking that thinks we should go to the future, move forward to the future, right? Because that's how history unfolds, right? And with that, I conclude. Um, I'll open it up for questions. Did you want to, like, do a mic thing? Is that Should I just do the questions based on a mic or with a mic? I can keep this one okay.
0: All right. Everybody wants to be the first one, but we can only have one person (laughs) at a time. So. Uh, What is the objective of the terrorists?
1: What is the objective of the terrorists? Depends on which kind of terrorists, right? There are some that simply seek change to the status quo, and there are some that basically want to bring up more of the status quo, right? So, like, which terrorists would you be referring to? Uh, Al-Qaeda. Are they wanting to eliminate the state of Israel to uh, get peace in the Middle East? All right, so uh, the the question is, what does Al-Qaeda want, right? And, and the answer is very complex, but I'll sum it up in one model, right? According to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, this, this guy who was al-Qaeda operative, a pretty high-up al-Qaeda operative, the same guy that's responsible for the 9-11 attacks, by the way, intellectually and mentally and so on, the, the model of Khaled Sheikh Mohammed is or, get the Americans out of the Arabian Peninsula, right? Get them out of Saudi Arabia in particular, right? Now, we have to be careful, because there's a strand of thought in this country that conflates Al-Qaeda with those terrorist organizations that oppose Israel. Is that a correct conflation? We have to be careful about that. The truth is, Al-Qaeda has a different mission. It's more globally oriented than it is locally oriented. Right? Al-Qaeda's biggest enemy isn't Israel. Do you know which? what is Al-Qaeda's biggest enemy? It's the United States of America. Right? Are the United States of America and Israel's goals tied in the Middle East? That's the way that these fanatics want us... That's that's what they want us to believe, right? They want us to believe that Al-Qaeda... Or sorry, that the United States and Israel are connected, just like, by the way, Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah are connected. They're not, right? And to treat them that way would be very dangerous because you're making your enemy much bigger than the tiny enemy that Hezbollah is and that separately, the smaller enemy that Al-Qaeda is. Al-Qaeda is small... But its actions show it to be much larger than it actually is, right so we have to be careful about that kind of conflation. other questions Yes.
0: Uh, I have a question about uh Iran um, My question about uh Iran is uh um, well uh that um uh, The recent uh, uprisings that Iran has had, in which the government has kind of told them, you know what, you can't do anything like this. If not, you could possibly get tortured or killed
1: uh, by the mullahs or something like that. Uh, My question would have to be, um, uh, would the United States do something about Iran uh, to at least, you know, make Iran a, a free Iran? Or or at least make it somewhat of a key ally eventually in the
0: near future with all the problems with Iraq and Afghanistan on top of that?
1: Thank you. That's actually an excellent question, the, and and I will say it this way. The the worst enemy of the Iranian regime, the Mullahs, President Ahmadinejad, everybody that's literally involved in the regime in Iran, the worst enemy is not the United States of America. It's actually proven after 2009 to be their own people, Right. The worst thing that we can do right now is to take intervention, whether it's military or other kinds of intervention against Iran, because that's the kind of intervention that will make it look like those protesters, those people that want freedom from this regime. It will make it look like they're traitors. They're basically siding with an enemy, a foreign enemy in this case, the United States of America. The best thing that we can do is really, I mean, like I said, I mean there's a lot of good thinking in this country, right? The best thing that we can do is the kind of thinking the early John McCain, right? Who basically argues that we should side with the protesters, that we shouldn't stretch ourselves to think, that we shouldn't go after regimes that are hostile to our interests openly, right? That we should do so from behind the scenes. And actually that's happening right now. Every year, ninety million dollars, ninety million with an M. Ninety million dollars is allocated in Congress for the overthrow of the Iranian regime. Right? Now how that's done is literally by siding with the opposition. And there's a very substantial opposition to Iran. Forty percent of the Iranian folks, the Iranian population opposes that regime. But the danger with forty percent is what? What's the remainder? Leave sixty percent that basically supports the regime. Right? Can we make that sixty forty, right? Can we make it so that 60% opposes the Iranian regime and 40% is in favor of the Iranian regime? Yeah, we can, right? But it will take some time. And it will take time that would be better spent. It will take time that would make more sense to wait out than to have direct military confrontation with that regime. I always tell anybody that's willing to listen that if you liked Iraq, if you liked American intervention in Iraq, you will love American intervention in Iran right? I mean, if you think we're bogged down, even though we're drawn now now, we're leaving like advisors in Iraq. If you think we're bogged down in Iraq, Iraq will look like a cakewalk, right? Or a park walk or whatever. My English is kind of weak, actually. I don't know those analogies very well. But it'll, it'll make it look like a day in the park compared to Iranian intervention, right? It will, it will destabilize the region like nothing else. The worst thing that we can do is engage the Iranians militarily. I mean, think about it this way. The Egyptians... Needed our help to overthrow their regime. Our help came a little too late, right? But they overthrew that regime. The Libyans definitely needed our help to overthrow their regime, right? But imagine if we lived in a world where we actually went after Gaddafi, where we where we bombed Libya against the will of the Libyan people, right? Imagine a world in which we would have bombed the Tunisian regime without Tunisian people actually rising up against the Tunisian government. I mean the one thing that I want to impart to you today is that the people that live in this region want freedom as much as you and I want freedom. And the best way to make that happen is not to engage in the worst action against freedom. War is like war is the biggest solvent to freedom I've ever seen. Right? War constrains freedom. It doesn't bring about more freedom. Now what we can do is help, right? We can basically help in terms literally moral support. We can help in terms of financial support. We can help, in some cases, literally through military support, like we did with Libya. But we have to leave the ultimate decision in the hands of the people that really want change, that really want freedom. The worst thing that we can do is make it so that those people are in the awkward position of supporting a foreign enemy of the regime, in this case the United States of America. The best thing that we can do is allow people to basically seek what they want. And that is freedom. They did it in Libya. They did it in Egypt. They did it in Tunisia. They're doing it right now in Yemen. They're doing it right now in Syria. Right? They're doing it everywhere. The question is how we should react. And the worst thing that we can do is 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 be trigger happy, right? Or or confirm what 90% of British citizens thought shortly after 9/11 by engaging in these destabilizing actions instead of affirming. national will in these nations that we're looking at. Other questions? Yes. That's, that's a great question. Is this working now? Okay, so we have three parts, right? We have how does Israel view the Arab Spring. We have what was the second question? Okay. And then your thoughts on the okay. okay, excellent. All right, so, so three questions. Those are very good questions, right? Let me start with the first one. The first one is that a lot of my Israeli friends... Privately support the Arab Spring, right? They think that Arabs should have what the Israelis have had for a long time, right? And that is that is the ability to choose their own government, that is being being free from the dictatorial thumbs of these dictatorships, and that is being able to have freedom of thought, freedom of choice, and so on, right? Now, th- those are my Israeli friends who are non government officials, right? When you get to the Netanyahu government, the current prime minister of Israel, they're frankly afraid to death. Of the Arab Spring, right? And they have, and they say they have good reason to fear the Arab Spring, right? I mean, the Islamic Brotherhood in Egypt, or the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslimin, in Egypt, is a very powerful and organized force in Egyptian society, right? Um, the other day, I don't know if you've been watching international news or following international news in any way, shape, or form. Do you know what happens to the Israeli embassy? It gets stormed by. Egyptian protesters. Right? Now, the bigger question is why that happened. I'm going to defer the answer for that, but let me answer it this way. Let me answer the Israeli perspective first and foremost, and that is that Israeli government officials are afraid of the Arab Spring because it actually gives people the right to choose. Israel is not a very popular state in the Middle East. It's not, it's not a popular state in the region. Right? In fact, there's a lot of like, dislike of Israel, and there's a lot of dislike of Israeli policies. And the dislike is centered, is mainly focused on Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. I mean, you know, some people say, well, no, it has nothing to do with Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. It has a lot to do with, like, people hating Israel. They don't hate Israel for the sake of hating Israel. They hate Israel's policies, and they hate what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, right? Um, And that's really the third question that you ask, and that is, like, what about a Palestinian state? there's nothing that is more effective at diffusing tensions between Arabs and Israel than a Palestinian state. In fact, that was said in 2002 with the Arab Peace Initiative, where if Israel was to accept a Palestinian state, if Israel was to accept basically the Palestinians as equals living side by side with Israel, that 22 Arab states would offer Israel peace. And this is something that is true from, you know, every single Arab country, right? every member of the Arab League, the best way for Israel to react to this situation is not to put its lot with Saudi Arabia. Israel should not act like Saudi Arabia in terms of supporting reaction to the Arab Spring. Israel should throw its weight towards the future, and the best way to throw your weight behind the future or towards the future is with the founding of a Palestinian state. How can we do that in the United States? we can basically affirm the principles that we said we want. I mean, George W. Bush outlined a roadmap for Palestinian statehood. Barack Obama has seconded that roadmap, right? We don't have action on that front. We don't have a move forward on that front. We still have more of the same. Palestinians living under occupation and Israel basically being at war with its neighbors, with the exception of Jordan and Egypt, right? As the Arab Spring strengthens, as it deepens, I fear that if Israel continues its path, right, and that is supporting the status quo of dictatorships, of monarchies, of military leaders, it will put itself in the same camp as the Saudi regime, or as the Libyan regime, or as the Egyptian, the former Egyptian regime, right? Um, There's no better way for a democracy to move forward than literally to move forward, right, to throw its weight behind the future, towards the future, not by holding on desperately, I would say to the past. Follow up. Okay. Yes. Um, with what happened in the Middle of
0: East, I like to know if the resignation is of the president. I mean, for um, um with what happened in the Middle of East, I like to know if because they're asking for the president to give up the uh, the power. So, do you think it's possible if all president, um if the resignation of the president can bring peace in the country
1: so what what is if i can clarify your question, are you saying like what is the ability of an American president to bring peace to the region no, I mean or what
0: like, huh
1: I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay, so will we have peace if these presidents and dictatorships give up power, right? In the long term, yes. In the short term, we're going to have more of what Libya just experienced. I mean, Libya experienced a civil war, right? In the short term, we're going to see a lot of things, a lot of turmoil, right? In the short term, we're going to see a lot of strife. In the short term, we're going to see a lot of people dead, frankly, right? A lot of people injured, wounded, maimed. In the long term, there's no better way towards peace than democracy. I mean, think about it this way. I know some of you may not have been old enough to remember this, right? But in 2000, we had an election in this country. Do you remember that? Okay. There was two people that participated in that election, two presidential candidates. Do you remember who they were? George W. Bush, right? Our president, former president. And this guy by the name of Al Gore. Al Gore, Al Gore ran against Bush. There was a dispute in the state of Florida, right? Republicans versus Democrats. Did anybody see like Republican armies and Democratic armies descend on the state of Florida to adjudicate the election? No. What did we see? We saw an army of sorts on both sides. It was an army of lawyers, right? It was an army of lawyers. It wasn't an army, like, literally, like, toting arms and, and going toe-to-toe in the state of Florida, right? It was an army of lawyers. That's, I know, the law and like, and, like, you know, legal contestation might look very violent, but it's actually very pleasant compared to, like, civil wars and stuff like that. There's nothing that is more important to peace than democracy, because democracy and, and literally the rule of law allows us to adjudicate our differences, to work out our differences amicably compared to, even though it could be very hostile, right? I should be careful using legal terminology like amicably, right? The danger with an absence of democracy, an absence of the rule of law, is that think about it this way. If you don't have the freedom to choose your leadership, what can you do to bring about different leadership? You know what? You can kill them, basically. That's all you can do. Do you know what it takes to kill a regent of another country, a leader of another country? It takes a lot, and it takes like possibly a civil war, right? In the short term, it's going to be that kind of civil war. If we get democracies, and I, God willing, we will. inshallah, even though I hate that word, because my dad always used to say it when I asked him for a toy when I was a kid. Um, when we get, when we get democratic regimes, we can have the peaceful, peaceable adjudication of people's differences. Right? If we have real democracy. If we have more of the same, we're going to have more of the same. It's actually going to be worse than more of the same. It's, it's going to be a violent upheaval for, for decades to come. Right. The best way that the United States can act in this kind of situation, just like I said about Israel, is to look to the future, not to try to cling on to the past. Right? We're trying that right now. We're doing it in Saudi Arabia. Barack Obama, the American administration, Congress still supports Saudi Arabia, right? Now, does that mean that we should, like, withdraw our support of Saudi Arabia immediately? No, right? I don't, I don't like these, like, drastic, sudden foreign policy moves. I mean, think of foreign policy as a big ship. Big ships don't move on a dime. They need some time to move left, port side or starboard, or whatever, right? They need some time to move, right? So we have to move towards the future instead of clinging on to the past, in this, in this regard. Does that answer your question, I hope? Yes. I don't know what that sound I it
0: makes me not want to use it. I heard an expression once, the, some of these regions are not ready for democracy. Could you elaborate?
1: I don't know what that means. Well, I mean, anytime I hear that, I think it's... Yeah, that's a speaker, okay. All right, good. I'll just stay away from this. Anytime I hear that question, it's it's a it's a great question, right? Are these people ready for democracy? And it it brings me back, it, it makes me remember my one of my professors in college when I was a graduate student in college. He looked at me, he looked he looked me straight in the eye and he says, Islam does not have a democratic bone in its body, right? Now that's not the question that you're asking, but what I'm saying is is that is that we underestimate those people. Right? If we say they're not ready for democracy, I think everybody is as ready for democracy as anybody's ever going to be. And this is especially true in the era of, like, you know, I don't use this, but face, this thing called Facebook or something, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I sound kind of um, like backward looking or whatever. Even though I'm talking about, to you about the future, maybe I should get on Facebook, but anyway. Uh, or in the era of, of Twitter. Some people call it Twitter. It's not Twitter, it's Twitter, I was told. Um, so, so seriously, like, like in, in the era of rapid communication, I think that it gives everybody the ability to be ready for democracy, right? But even without Facebook and Twitter and 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 and, and instant communication, I think human beings and I'm, maybe I'm like Tocqueville this way, right? Tocqueville, the, the 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 19th century political philosopher, I I think that I think that human beings inherently strive towards democracy, right? As children, we want freedom. I mean, I look at my three-year-old niece. She wants freedom all the time. Now, granted, sometimes it's freedom to, like, burn her hand on a stove, right? But human beings have always wanted freedom, right? I think that human beings want democracy. Now, the question of readiness maybe is a separate one. I shouldn't conflate readiness with willingness. Human beings are willing to, they want democracy or desire, if you will, right? But they may not be ready for democracy. In which case, I would argue, I would i would imagine a world in which, the United States, think about this. This is a radical idea. This is like a totally novel idea. Maybe the United States can actually, like, help prepare people for a democracy, right? Maybe that should be our mission. Maybe, maybe our, our, and not just the United States government. See, a lot of people think the United States, it must mean the United States federal government. It doesn't have to, right? We have a lot of talent in this country. We have a lot of, like, NGOs. NGOs stands for what? Sorry to sound like a professor. Non-governmental organizations, right? We have a lot of NGOs, fine NGOs in this country and Western Europe, right? and heck, even in China and the Arab world, right, that can help prepare people for democracy. Now, granted, the federal government has to have the initiative towards the future, towards have an eye to the future, right, in terms of, of, of being willing to help people achieve democracy. Whether they're ready or not, right, whether those people, Middle Eastern, Muslim, Arab, whatever, are ready for a democracy or not, I think the question has been answered. I mean, ask that to people in Tahrir Square. They'll say, yes, of course we're ready for democracy. Right? Uh, ask that to, to people in Tripoli, right, in Libya. Ask, pe- ask that question to people in Tunisia. Of course they're ready for democracy. They want democracy. Right? Are they ready for democracy? I think we can help them become more ready for democracy. Right? Are they ready for democracy? Yeah, they are ready for democracy. They just have to be helped along that democratic march forward if I may, right. What about
0: Jordan? Jordan. Okay,
1: that's a really good question. What about Jordan? I should have like a lead thing. Okay. All right, what about Jordan? That's a really good question. Um I'm actually a national of Jordan. I'm a I'm a citizen of Jordan and a citizen of, I'm a dual citizen, right? Um, there's a lot of protests in Jordan, right? Calling for now what do I mean by a lot? Not too much a lot. what's that? Reformists, right? People want reform in Jordan. Right? So what do they want? Like, they want like maybe not a constitutional monarchy that looks like Sweden, but some sort of, of like reform. Like, what kind of reform? An end to corruption, more political freedoms, more economic freedoms, right? I don't see the case of Jordan as being, say, as bad as the case of Libya, right? Um, even though Jordan does have a king that rules with absolute authority. I see the Jordanian king as a sort of like enlightened monarch instead of like a dictatorial monarch, right? Now, maybe I'm saying that because I'm afraid of somebody in this room being a part of the Jordanian mukhabarat the intelligence agency, and I'm afraid of being arrested next time I land in that country, if I ever land in that country. Uh, but seriously, a part of me says that, that Jordan is not as bad of a case, if you will, as Libya. Now, here's, here's the thing, though. They're very similar... As you know, cases in Egypt and cases in literally like like like, like Syria, right, or, or 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 Tunisia. They're very similar in the sense that you work and you work and you work and you work and you have nothing to show for it. They're very similar in the sense that in in the sense of their economy is set up like a pyramid scheme, right, where those at the top suck off all of the resources and those at the bottom get get scraps, right the kind of reforms that the Jordanians are asking for are very similar to the kind of reforms that the Syrians are asking for, right? But the Jordanian regime is much more stable in terms of its ability to rule than the Syrian regime. I mean, the Syrians have a a minority that rules. Jordan still has a majority that rules, even though 60% of the Jordanian nation is Palestinian, right? And 40% is Jordanian, yeah? What's that? You're one of them. Are you Jordanian or Palestinian? Palestinian yeah Jordanio, okay but now'm ahead well, welcome. I hope that answers your question though. I think we have time for one more question okay. with one more. give me your best who's got the best question? Somebody who hasn't spoken yet all right, this guy right there, okay. <laughs> there's always one in every room I
0: guess so uh, my question is just basically with um all the things that are happening in this this world um did you think it's the United States' job as a superpower or a duty, um, to con, to kind of be the world's police, you know, basically. I mean, cause if you look at it, the people, as you said, uh, people look at us as one, a leader, but also too aggressive sometimes. So isn't that kind of like a, <laughs> it's, a it's kind of a, a double, you know, double edged sword.
1: All right, so so th- this is the question, right? Is it really our our duty to be the world's police, right? Ultimately, okay. All right. Um, somebody has to. Somebody has to do like the job of peacekeeping, right? Whether it's the United States or the United Nations, we don't have the United Nations that's capable of doing peacekeeping on its own, and that's that's done intentionally, by the way, because we still live in a world of states, right? The United States is one of the greatest superpowers that's ever existed, and here's the other thing: the danger with. I, I'm going to answer your question, but let me let me like just kind of. And I know you're. You, I know that you want to hear hear the entirety of this, perhaps, right? But listen to me very carefully. The United States is a lot like. Let me let me use the analogy of like dog dog fighting. It's a very morbid example. It's a horrible example. It's a felonious example in most states, right? So you shouldn't do it. If you should knock it off. If you're doing it in this state, um, the United States is a lot like a. Uh, A a sort of a dog handler in dog fighting imagine a world in which you have two dogs right and imagine a world in which the handler feeds one dog and feeds him very well right feeds him like the the purest of meats and gets him all fattened up and pumps him full of steroids right on the one hand imagine the same dog handler so we'll call this dog the top dog dog A right the dog that gets treated well Imagine the same dog handler with dog B, giving him limited resources, just enough to survive, right? Making him skinny, making him, making him like, like, literally, like, like, strong enough to survive, right? But too weak to be able to fight against the other dog, dog A, right? Imagine the same dog handler basically putting the two dogs... And what do they call it, like a pin or a ring? I, I don't, I'm not a dog fighter, so it's a horrible analogy. Maybe I should have more experience with it. But imagine, imagine the same dog handler putting the two dogs, dog A and dog B, in the same pen, in the same pit, whatever. Pit? Pit, is that the right word? Okay. All right, pit. Okay. And then imagine the dog handler saying, you know, I'm going to look the other way now. I shouldn't really police these two dogs' behaviors because, because like, it's unfair. I, sh- I, I should just kind of withdraw from policing what they will do to each other. That's really what the United States has done. We've strengthened some, and we've intentionally weakened others. And if we withdraw now, if we, if we do not uphold our fiduciary duty, and I'd say it's fiduciary, it's, it's a duty of trust. And it's not a trust that's placed upon us by, by human beings, right? It's a trust that's placed upon us by really the force of history and the force of what is right, by the force of morality. If we look the other way now, we're basically that dog handler. Right? We've strengthened one at the expense of the other, and then we withdraw. It's a dangerous question, right? but let me answer it. The answer to your question is, no, we shouldn't be policing the world. But at the same time, we shouldn't have had you know, 50 years or so of strengthening one side at the expense of the other. And since we did that, if we are going to do the right thing, I don't think the right thing would be to withdraw. I think the right thing would be to levelize, if you will, our engagement with the rest of the world. Instead of making one side strong, Saudi Arabian regime strong, and the Saudi people weak, right? we, sh- we should try to correct the course of action instead of completely abnegating our duties to doing that which is right. That's the only way forward. It's not, it's not withdrawing. It's by engaging meaningfully. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Marar. He really traveled in horrible traffic to get here. It was great of him to just literally jump out of the car and, and share all of his insight with you. Thank all of you for coming. Those were excellent questions. Uh, I'd like to thank Troy Swanson and his staff for putting all this together over here on the left. And I uh, invite all of you guys to come back tomorrow. We have a panel discussion on Between Two Worlds as part of the One Book, One College. The panel discussion starts at 11 a.m. right here in the library. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.